This is the Journey 66 Book Writing Podcast. I'm Melissa Parks with Dave Getz, and we are your road trip advisors. You may be at mile marker one and just thinking about an idea for a book, or maybe you've gone off-road in your writing and you want to restart the journey. Join Dave and me as we help you buckle up and write. Making time to write is difficult for all writers, but especially true for professionals and maybe even more challenging for entrepreneurs and small business owners. There's this erroneous thinking that if you run your own business, you have more flexibility and thus more flexibility to write. It may actually be harder simply because a business owner must create a discipline for writing while wearing multiple hats and succeeding at the multitasking required to lead a business. Today, we are interviewing Kathy Carroll, founder and president of Legacy Onward, a leadership coaching practice for family businesses. Prior to founding Legacy Onward in 2013, Kathy was president and CEO of the Pro Equine Group and was director of global accounts for United Airlines. She started out her career as an actuary with Hewitt Associates and holds an MBA in finance and organizational behavior from the University of Chicago. Dave first got to know Kathy at a networking group in the city of Chicago and through the years developed a friendship. Dave, maybe you should welcome Kathy to the podcast since you and her share a rich history. We do share a rich history, and Kathy, I am so glad that you are here today. Welcome to Journey 66. Thank you, Dave. So nice to be here with you and Melissa. So Kathy, before we get started, we want to share an area of our lives where we are making forward progress. Journey 66 is all about the journey and moving forward, and so Dave and I want to celebrate the journeys in our own lives where we are making progress, and it and it's not necessarily related to writing. So I'll go first. And my board progress of the week is wrapping presents. We've had boxes piled up in my office from Amazon for about two weeks and the piles have gotten taller and taller and taller like a mountain. And I look at it when I'm on Zoom meetings and it stresses me out. So over the weekend, my husband started to wrap the presents and I helped him decorate it and now we have them all ready to ship out, and I have space for the rest of the holidays. So that is my forward progress for the week. Dave, how about you? That's huge. I wonder if COVID and not being able to shop like you normally do, if you do this kind of thing for either Hanukkah or, or Christmas or whatever the celebration, holiday celebration, I wonder if COVID makes it like harder because they pile up and then you wait. I don't know. Yeah, the boxes are overwhelming to me. I hate all the Amazon boxes. And then my husband is really particular about collapsing them in the recycling bin. I am not like that. And so for me, it's always one extra step of taking out the packaging, getting the knife out and collapsing them and putting them in the recycling bin. So for me, it feels like multitasks, multiple tasks. Your husband must be an engineer. <laughs> he is an engineer yeah, and I'm definitely the creative. I, I want to see how I can smush them all in in a creative way. <laughs> Well, I will go next. Uh, my big forward progress this last week was starting to lift weights again. Now, if you looked at me, you would go, huh, you've lifted weights your entire life. You would not be impressed. However, I have lifted light weights throughout my life, but I stopped during COVID and oh my gosh, I started up this last week. I am so sore. And I realized as I look at my profile in the mirror, 
I, I, things have really sagged. So, uh, so I feel like I've made huge forward progress just by going to the gym once and doing some sets of lifting. So I'm feeling really good about myself. That's, that's really inspiring, Dave. I definitely have struggled with the COVID-15, maybe not 15, but like the COVID-5. And I also stopped lifting weights and it's so defeating. So you're encouraging me to just start but how long do you think that soreness will last for oh my my guess is a couple weeks because as you work out you're starting to lift a little more and i think that like that initial soreness it'll be a couple weeks and i think i will need to uh take some advil so kathy we need some forward progress from you before we dip into these wonderful questions this afternoon well, thank you for going first. You gave me time to think of something. <laughs> the forward progress I'd like to brag about is I went out and I bought a brick. And you might say, why would I go out and buy a brick? Well, I've been needle pointing a brick cover for months and I'm finally finished with the needle pointing. And so now all I have to do is wrap my finished needle point product around a brick. And then I will have a brick that will hold my door open in the nice weather. That's amazing. It's beautiful. I wish that our listeners could see it. It's this beautiful, it almost looks like a, is it a damp, like a damask or damask? How do you say it? Uh, what kind of pattern is it? It's a great question. I think it's blue. <laughs> the color is blue. It's beautiful. <laughs> and it has bees in it. So I think you might be right. It might be a fancy word like that. That might be an interesting word to show up later today. Right. right. If I could learn how to pronounce it too, right? That would be half the battle. <laughs> So let's, let's dip into your background. How long has it been since you moved from Chicago to San Antonio? I was thinking it was a year, but it must be two years now, correct? Yeah, two years uh, and two weeks. Wow, that's amazing. And my guess is this time of year, given that it's December, San Antonio is a little bit nicer than is Chicago. Yesterday it was 72. Life is good. Oh, today it's especially cold. I think it's, it's what, 28, 29 degrees. It's not very warm. Not warm, but it could be worse. (laughs) It could be worse. So I'm really excited about this episode, Kathy. And that's because we've been friends. Uh, We started out meeting in a networking group in Chicago. And I think some of them had been former Vistage uh, attendees. I don't think it was out of a Vistage group. Anyway, I've just loved the chance to get to know you, and I have learned a little bit about your work through the years, uh, your coaching especially. I thought it would be helpful, though, for you to explain the word or the term family business, and then tell us a little bit about Legacy Onward and your work as a coach in that space. Different people define family business in a different way. For me, my definition is when two members of a family work in a business and at least one is an owner. That's my definition. So tell us a little bit about Legacy Onward and your work as a coach in that space and maybe even the type of person you would coach and what you might coach him or her on. The people that I tend to coach in my practice are leaders in family businesses and they fall into three categories. Typically it's the ownership generation, the rising generation, and then non-family leaders that work in a family business. And some of the leadership 
development challenges are similar and some of them are, are unique to each segment and they all are rich, delicious in their own ways. So Carol, can you tell us a little bit about your book that you've been working on without giving away too much and really when the idea came to you that, man, I need to write a book on this topic? I'll give you a really brief background about why I do this work. I am a leadership coach serving family businesses, but why I do what I do is a little bit longer. I won't belabor it, but I actually grew up in a family business and there was a lot of drama um, when I was a grandchild. My grandfather was the original entrepreneur. And so when I graduated from college, I went corporate. I wanted nothing to do with the family business and spent 20 years in a variety of corporate roles. And then in 2009, my father sucked me back into the family business <laughs> <laughs> and I ran uh, his businesses for a few years. And it was there that I juxtaposed leadership in a public company to leadership in a family business. And I was really struck by how different the experiences were. When I left my father's business, it was it was complicated circumstances under which I left. And it uh, when I got introduced to the concept of coaching, it became clear to me that I really could have benefited if I had had a coach when I was working with my father. I, I looked around for books about leadership in family businesses, and I found a lot of books on leadership and a lot of books on family businesses, but nothing about leadership in a family business. The only family business books um, the titles that I could find were about governance and succession planning, which are huge and unique in the family business space. But that's not uh, the end all. There's a lot more to the day-to-day -day blocking and tackling that's involved in family business leadership. So I realized that there is this big gap because there aren't, there aren't resources out there for people. So I thought, you know, maybe this is a chance for me to, to help the people who are, who struggled the way I struggled when I worked in, in my family business. I thought it would be a nice way to extend awareness of what coaching is in a segment of the business world that isn't that familiar with coaching. Um, I started my, my, practice in 2013. And uh, although family businesses are embracing coaching more and more uh, than ever, it's still not nearly as prevalent as it is in large corporations. And I thought it would be, I mean, what more valuable segment in the world can, can you do, can you help families and help the employees of families and have the goodness really ripple out into the world than, than helping family business leaders? And th then the third focus was that I thought, you know, this could be really helpful in building the foundation for advanced training for coaches who want to serve family businesses. And that's really the end game here for me. I'd love to get into the business of advanced training for, for already certified coaches who really want to focus on family businesses as a, as a key segment of their, of their work. So, so what you're saying is that you would love to, in a sense, provide almost a subspecialty in family business coaching to coaches who are already certified in doing the work. Correct. And I, I think I may know this because of all my conversations with you, but I think for our audience it would be helpful. What's one difference between say your work in corporate as a leader and then your work in a family business in which your father is the owner and you report to him and yet run the business? Well, you just teed up the entire thesis of the book. <laughs> well done. <laughs> the thesis of the book is that 
family business leadership is uniquely challenging because you have two different mindsets operating in your brain at the same time that are telling you opposite things to do. The rules are different. You've got the business mindset, which is all about profit and meritocracy and competition. And then you have the family mindset, which is about unconditional acceptance and fairness and sharing. And so you put these two mindsets in the brain of a leader, and then you have them address business challenges, and it gets very, very confusing because there's the brain experiences all this cognitive dissonance. The rules according to business are to pay everyone what the market rate says to pay. The rules in the family are, we're all family. We should pay each other the same amount, which is the, I think the easiest example of describing how these different mindsets show up in business decisions. Cause it's uh, surprising how many family businesses where the members of the family are all paid the same amount. It's not every family business, but it's not uncommon. And it's perfectly logical when you're using the family mindset and not so logical when you're using the business mindset. So that's really the, the thesis of the book. The, the family mindset and the business mindset are, are, are giving you different answers to the same problem. That so. is really helpful. It reminds me of the problem with the Chicago Bears because they are right owned by the McCaskies, right? That just makes complete sense why they struggle so much making decisions, in my opinion, about personnel on the, on the Bears. If, if you have everybody making the same amount of money, I'm not saying that's true with the Chicago Bears, but you see that all the family members have to get fed first before the decisions about the Chicago Bears are even made. It's a completely different model of decision-making. Wow, that's fascinating. It's that is fascinating. really fascinating. So Kathy, for the benefit of our audience, can you share a little bit about where you are in the book writing journey and maybe just some of the ups and downs along the path of writing your book so far? I started by gathering data and I interviewed 75 leaders in family businesses, actually all the way around the world, mostly in the Chicagoland area, but technically around the world. And then I isolated the interesting clips and cut them out into strips of paper and organized them all over the place into themes. And then I structured the book around the themes. Everything really fit into this polarity, this, this tension, this family business tension, except for a few things. Most things fit into it, not everything did. When I started writing the book, I finished my, you know, the SFD. I, you guys have talked about the SFD. Can I say it out loud on, on a podcast? Well, we will do it if you don't want to. It's, we call it the shitty first draft. That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> and that comes from Anne Lamott. So we did not we did not create that. But when she coined that, I don't know how many, 20 some years ago, it just made sense to use it for everything. So sorry to interrupt. <laughs> yeah. No, thank you. Yeah. So I, I started writing um, in 2000, in the winter of 2015, when I spent my first winter down in San Antonio. My husband lives in San Antonio. We weren't married at the time we were dating, um, but it gave me a taste of what the winters in the South can be like. And uh, the summer of, or the winter of 16, I continued writing the winter of 17. I finally finished the book and then we got engaged. <laughs> That's it, I'm moving down. So I, I finished the SFD in 2017 and I really only wrote during the winters because during the, the spring, summer and fall, I was running around the Chicagoland area doing client work um, and I didn't 
create space in my calendar for it. So it took me a few winters to get it done. And then I edited it until September of 2019. And then I hit an absolute wall. In September of 19, I dropped it. And I couldn't figure out why I was so overwhelmed. Uh, and it took me some time to sort of slow down and reflect on why I had to drop it. But it really came down to, I got engaged. Four months later, I got married. A few months later, I put my house on the market. A few months later, I moved to San Antonio. A few months later, I moved. I mean, it, it was just an incredible sprint for about two and a half years. And finally, by September of 19, I just needed a break. I just needed to, I needed to, uh, some, some white space in my life. And so I, I kept on finding myself overwhelmed with frustration because I was, you know, that express shooting on yourself. I was shooting, I should write the book. I should do this. I should do it. And I was just so shut to every time I felt like the need to should, I would crawl into a fetal position and <laughs> just sit there. And so finally I gave myself permission to, to give it a break. What was the work that you perceived needed to be done still after you had done revisions and when you stopped at 2019 and where you are today, what, what changes, what work still needs to be done? It's such a great question because I've learned a ton about my writing process with this journey. So what what I have done, not that it's the right way and certainly um, maybe not the best way, but what, what I have followed is I started with a skeleton. Like I took all those quotes and I just kind of regurgitated them into a Word document and I put some very shallow framing around each one of the quotes so I could get the bones of the book in place. And I thought I'd be done. And then I realized, oh my gosh, this is a terrible book. So I got some feedback that it's a terrible book. <laughs> I needed oh, to, well, no, 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 loving feedback, loving feedback. Very, very honest. Like Kathy, it sounds like it's a dissertation. You know, you're not defending your, your, your PhD thesis here. This is like, you know, this is a book that you want people to read. And I thought, well, that's a, that's a good point. So I started editing it. But the first part of my editing process was realizing how and where I had gaps and where I was shallow in my thinking. Mm -hmm. And so it, the process of writing really helped me formulate my point of view, really helped me have, a, have something meaningful to say as opposed to just here are a bunch of quotes, you, you figure it out, you, you, you figure out what that means. So that was round one of editing. And then I went through round two and I think I did another pass at, gosh, this, this part still needs to be fleshed out. You know, this section really belongs over here. Like for example, I have a chapter on, on compensation. I have a chapter on emotions and I have a chapter on, on power. And it talk, you know, think about an example where you've got someone using power to control someone's uh, compensation in the business, right? Well, it could fit into any one of those three chapters. So it was like trying to figure out where to place it in the most relevant way was another piece of it. And then I only got through a portion of the editing and then I dropped it. That's when I dropped it in 2019. And I came back to it in literally September of 2020, just came back to it. And I started again at chapter one and two. And it was great because this time when I edited it, it was, how do I make this interesting for the reader? Like I've, I've got a perspective on it, but instead of writing for me, I started to write for my mom. It changed the way I wrote. Like I, I remember vividly. So every chapter opens with what I think is a really gripping story. And I, re I read chapter two and it started with, 
Henry, G2 founder or G2, age 56, blah, 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 uh, worked in a family business with his cousin, Jerome. And I was like, boring. So I changed it to Jerome is the bane of Henry's existence. And so then you, you have a, I don't know, is it, is it a hook or whatever? Like, yeah. is that what the fancy term is? Yeah. You get, you get, oh, there's a bane of existence. I see some emotion. Let's go explore that. So I started rewriting again with my point of view established, but now caring more about what other people are hearing and caring less about what it is that I have to say, if that makes sense. I love that. Dave and I, I know in our course say that you have to advocate for your reader. Um, and that comes back to voice. And um, one way that you can advocate for your reader is to ask that question, how can I make this most interesting for them? So I think what you're doing is very brave and it, it's time consuming. The easier thing to do would be to just hand it over as is and get it published as is, but that would be uninteresting and it wouldn't be good for the reader. So congratulations on that. I don't mean to plug you guys too much, but credit to you. I've been listening to your podcast and it's really affected me in meaningful ways. And so I, I, I take the lessons and I incorporate as many of them as I can. Um, in fact, I'm, I'm at a point now where you guys have convinced me so much about the developmental edit and how important that is that it be really solid before you actually do the work of writing that I am now almost reverse engineering the developmental edit for chapters one and two and really like thinking through the developmental edits for chapters three, four through eight. So I think that's gonna be really important work that'll serve me well. And it's, it's, you know, writing a book isn't like a passive casual thing. Like you have to really think, it really forces you engage your brain in a way that uh, I thought I'd just be able to spit it out. You know, I, I wrote things in college and I was just able to go bleh and it seemed to do fine. I, it, but this is a lot, this is a much bigger thing than an essay for college. The difference I think between academic writing and what you're doing now is in academic writing, or at least this was my case when I was pursuing my PhD, is you're kind of synthesizing everybody's ideas to make maybe a fresh point. But here you're actually saying new things that really haven't ever been said before. And, and in a popular book like you're trying to write, you're trying to say it in, in a real winsome kind of engaging way that academia is not known for. Are you enjoying yourself in terms of the writing is hard work? So anybody that says, oh, this is I just love to write. I'm like, oh, that person hasn't written ever or very much. So writing is hard work, but there are moments in which you have these, where you feel like you're being drafted along, right? You, there's, there's, there's some, what's the word, wind beneath your wings. And then other times in which you're just flapping as hard as you can and you're getting no lift. After the restart in just a few months ago, do you find yourself enjoying the writing a bit more? Do you have a different kind of energy than you did before? Certainly have a more energy than when I put it down. It, it, I, I, don't, I don't always find myself in flow. That's the expression I'll use. Like when you've got the wind beneath your wings and time just passes and you've lost, you've lost yourself in the moment. I don't get that very often, which makes the energy substantial to pick it up, right? To, and so I've, I have followed your sage advice and I have blocked 60 to 90 minute windows 
And when I stick to the window, you know, in that 90 minutes, I can, I can feel really good about what I'm doing. And a day or two later, when I come back, sometimes I'm just not feeling it because I know that there's a ramp up and I have to kind of get back into that mental place. Or, you know, if there's a week or two that goes, then it's a little bit harder to, the longer the time goes between sessions, the bigger the hill is to ramp back up to get into a place of, you know, closer to flow for me. So the more often I do it for 60 or 90 minutes in a week, the more likely I'm able to maintain that pace. When you think about all that you've accomplished in your writing so far, has it made you a better coach or has it made you think differently about your coaching and how you approach your coaching with family business leaders? Yeah, it's interesting. It's been iterative. I think the the many years now that I've been doing the coaching has actually changed some of the content of the book as much as the book has influenced the coaching. So my, my thinking early on in the book was more shallow. And as I have much more experience working with these delicious leaders, so to speak, um, it, it really has deepened my point of view on the book. Simultaneously, the book is something that I will use on occasion with clients. Um, the book is about polarities. It's interdependent pairs. It's two, two opposites that need each other to exist, like an inhale and an exhale. They define each other. Now, a family business is not a natural polarity in the sense that you can have a family without a business. You can have a business without a family. But if you're in a family business, they are deeply intertwined. They are, they are very interconnected. Uh, and so in this space, I will introduce the concept of polarities, leadership, typically leadership polarities, but occasionally when the, when the circumstances present themselves, if I notice that the leader is stuck in a family business polarity where the family mindset and the business mindset are in competition for each other, I'll share very briefly the, the thesis and see how it lands and then see if there's anything that the client might learn from that. Like, what do they take away from this as a, as a concept? And sometimes it can be a huge door opener for clients. And other times it falls flat. A Polara what? <laughs> yeah. Talk about one time in which it lights up their eyes and they go, oh, oh, do you have an anecdote or a story without giving away uh, anybody's identity, but where you found that this idea of a polarity and you have to, I, I hear, my guess is that your book is all about, you have to live within the polarity, right? It's not either or. Right. It's a both and kind of existence. Any pole taken to an ex extreme really becomes a problem. But if you're able to, to manage the upsides of both ends of the pole and sort of navigate between them, not stand in the middle, but really actually harness the upsides of both, it's, that's the both and world that you live in. So the, the first example, Dave, that comes to mind is when a family leader wants to fire a family member. Hmm. And it happens all the time. I can't believe this freeloader is here, never shows up to work, not carrying her weight, not fair that she's taking a salary, practically a ghost income, you know, that kind of stuff. And so the the business rules are to terminate the underperforming employee. The family rules are, this is my cousin and this is going to have an impact over the holidays and at weddings. And on top of it, my cousin's renting uh, a house from my parents 
And if I fire my cousin and my cousin can't pay rent, my parents are going to lose their retirement income. I mean, the system impact in a family business is substantial. So you get, you can't, it's just not as simple as this is an underperforming employee and I just need to let her go. This is a much more uh, interconnected, complex system of uh, decisions and consequences. That is such a great example. Oh my gosh. So how do you take your leadership polarity approach and coach them in that moment? I guess that would be the follow-up question. What's from the book would you take and help to help them make that decision or not make that decision? Yeah, well, that's chapter eight. (laughs) (laughs) It's actually, it's actually a a somewhat involved process, to be honest, but it's, uh, it starts with really understanding what the stories are in the leader's head about why they have a pull preference, what draws them to that particular pull preference, why it's hard to actually pull the trigger on that, understand the the other pulls, upsides and downsides, because there are upsides and downsides to the other strategy as well. It involves understanding how other people in the system see that same polarity. So the leader, for example, might say, I absolutely am gonna fire my cousin. This is a clear decision, bing, bang, boom, right? But then that leader's family members may have a much stronger preference towards the family mindset. And they would say, how could you possibly terminate so-and-so? That's a violation of every family. So you're, so understanding not just your own relationship with the polarity, but also to understand other people in the system and their relationship with the polarity, and then really sit with what are the choices that will help that leader live in integrity, understanding the possible consequences that will come forward. Feels like an impossible situation in family businesses. <laughs> it's really hard. That's that's why there's nothing about this in the in the it's complex, really hard stuff. And I think family business leaders are so underappreciated because they have all the same challenges, business challenges that corporate leaders face, right? With maybe the exception of not having to deliver Wall Street earnings on a quarterly basis. But then they have all this other family stuff that sits on top of it that makes decision making so, so challenging. It's a really underappreciated leadership. Which is why your book could never be a checklist book or just a, a, a list book. Like if you do these eight things, then you're going to have a successful family business because it's so nuanced and interconnected. And <laughs> when one side changes, then this side changes a little bit. So it, it can't be a simple list book. And it sounds like the way you've structured it is you've ha- you have these themes and you really tease out the nuances of, of each. What I've tried to do and... I've gone back and forth on this 10 times. I've got the thesis, how it manifests in part one, like in four different chapters. And then part two is different ways you can engage with this polarity as a leader. So it's the emotional intelligence, it's navigating polarities, it's having difficult conversations, those kinds of things, which are more, I'd say, skill building uh, in part two, but really teeing up the the reason why this really matters is all about part one um, in the stories. And I wish I could just say, here's the issue. Here's the, here's the difficult conversation framework. Here's another issue. It's just not that simple because there's even the, the stories are, represent so many different complex things at the same time that I, I, it couldn't be just as simple as here's a story, here's the answer, you know, (laughs) or here's a way to grapple with the answer. Because as a coach, 
as a coach, I'm not telling people what to do. As a coach, I'm creating the space for that person, that leader to process how that person's going to engage with this, with her challenge or with his challenge, which is actually one of the this is kind of off topic, but I'll put it in here anyway. It's one of the challenges I'm facing as an author is I have a point of view, but as a coach, I'm trained to withhold my point of view. And so it's, it's, I'm finding, I'm struggling in that tension of how much do I, of course, I think there's a right way. I'm a human being. Of course, I think there's a right way, but that right way is right for me. It's not, it doesn't mean that it's right for you, Melissa. It wouldn't be necessarily right for you, Dave. So I have to, present this material in a way that says, there aren't right answers in these decisions. There are only complexities for you to manage, intentions for you to manage. Here are some ways that you can manage these tensions so that you can make your own choices. To me, what makes this a book and not an article is that complexity. In fact, Melissa and I just did a coaching engagement uh, recently with someone and we were texting each other back and forth wondering, is this really a book idea? because it seems more like a long article, maybe a five or 6,000 word article. But I think what makes your book idea a book idea is the complexity. And I think it is going to be an idea book and not a how-to book. And you wanna change the way people think. And I think that will be a huge, huge value to people who pick up this book. It will be like the light comes on or there's some, it's not just a single aha, but it's, it's, it will shape the way they think about the business for some time. That's actually really nice to hear <laughs> because my inner critic is, is really loud right now. And my inner critic who has a British accent says, this is bollocks. You know, like I, it's so funny because I, I wrestled this down for so long and I finally like, I purged it all from my system. It's on a page now. And so that's part of the, the challenge in re-engaging with it. Is it like, it, it was wrestling in my head, in my body for so long. Once I finally got it out, I felt relief. Like I had my cathartic release. And now I have to go make it palpable for other people to understand. And, and that's where the, I'm struggling to, to find that drive again. You know, cause I already, it, the, the catharsis has, has been uh, enjoyed. <laughs> so now for me to share that with other people, I have to go tap into a, a deeper purpose, a, a bigger reason for me to deliver this to the world. I, I do think that once you get past the idea that it's, that there are, well, it's important to know there are just so many different types of books. And once I think you can, you grapple with the idea that this isn't a checklist book, this isn't a how-to manual, this fundamentally is an idea book. And so you're gonna come away in many ways with more questions than you might have answers, but you'll have a framework to answer the questions. And I think that that's what makes a book like this and will make this book really a powerful book. It will also make the book what I call more of a classic, meaning it'll stand the test of time as opposed to something that is like a, what would be the word, like a fast book or a- Or jejun. Yeah, jejun, very insubstantial and just yeah. kind of for the moment, but doesn't last very long. So I, I think if you're struggling, it's because it's that kind of book and, and it requires that kind of wrestling. Absolutely. So in closing, we just want to ask you for your best piece of advice for authors who are professionals 
and are contemplating writing a book or are writing a book and are maybe in a point of feeling discouraged, like they just don't have time to do it or they don't feel like they have the credibility to do it, what advice would you give to professionals who are on this book writing journey in the pre-phase or in the midst of it? Get interviewed by Melissa and Dave. <laughs> you guys, your comments have just like kind of rejuvenated or like rekindled. Like you, you've given me confidence that there's, there's something there. There's a there there. Dave and I talk about that a lot is that you do need feedback and you need somebody to draw out of you what may be in there and that you just haven't put words to yet, or even just to throw something around and just get validation that yes, you're on the right track. So it does speak to the importance of feedback. So again, we want to encourage our, our listeners to get feedback along the way. What else? There is, I think there is something magical about the discipline of blocking succeeding 90 minutes a few times a week. That consistency, the just the cadence keeps the momentum, it's that forward progress. It's the whole journey 66 mantra. And it's, and it's that simple. I mean, it's literally that simple. Just block the time and honor it. Blocking the time I've learned isn't enough. Honoring the time has to be paired with it because I can block the time, but my delete button's really, really good. <laughs> so is my move button. Oh, I'll just move it from here to here. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's so fresh to block the time, but to honor the time. That is, that's a nice turn of phrase. I think we need to coin that. I think that's really powerful. Simply said, but very powerful. Yeah. Not just block the time, but honor the time because ah, the two are, are, are paired. They really are paired. Yeah, that's great. So we're going to move into the section where we share our words of the episode and I will go first. I just learned this word yesterday and I'm dying to use it in some writing maybe in the future and it's called plangent and it is a loud reverberating and often melancholy sound. So like a harpsichord has a plangent sound or a pipe organ or um, a dove has a plangent coo, any, a sound that reverberates and is melancholy. It kind of speaks to, again, my Enneagram 4. I don't think I've ever heard that word before. Could you say it again? How do you say it? Plangent. P-L-A-N-G-E-N-T. Plangent. That's great. Uh, that is a completely new word to me. Right. I would think wind, a certain sound of the wind could be plangent. Also, maybe rain could be plangent, but yeah, anything that is reverberating and melancholy at the same time. What a trombone. A trombone, yes, that's plangent. Absolutely, good one, Kathy. <laughs> I was gonna say something more beautiful. A couple years ago, it was, a, it was the late fall. So it was mid-October, I guess that would be late fall, except if you're in Yellowstone, National Park, it's late fall. And and you could just feel the tips of the mountains had were covered with snow and there was a fog and you could barely see the tops. Well, you couldn't see the tops of the mountains, but you could see where the snow was coming down, really the snow line. It was cold and we're walking back to the truck and it was the last day of fly fishing in Yellowstone National Park. And I walked through a stand of cottonwoods and some of the cottonwoods still had their fall leaves, you know, the yellow and really not almost dark orange leaves on them. 
but they were mostly gone and had carpeted the, you know, the earth. And I was on this trail, I had my head down and I stopped in the stand of, of cottonwoods and you could hear them creak. There was a couple old trees that had, that were dead and you could hear them creak in the wind. And I don't know if it was the sound, but the, the context, that really was a plangent sound. Absolutely. And I feel like that word is so connected to the word I shared in our last episode, which is sodade, <laughs> which is that, that longing, the nostalgia for a moment in time. And anyway, I love those types of words that speak to the intangible. So mine is a little bit more shallow. So I apologize for this in advance. This is not a new word to me, but it's a word that I have used to great joy in my life. It's flummox. Flummox, which is this idea of to perplex someone or greatly bewilder them. And a good example of this would be, I flummoxed my parents growing up. I grew up in rural North Dakota, North and South Dakota. And to this day, my parents are both alive. I love them to death. I talk to them virtually, if not every, I'm, I think it's every day. I mean, we're always chatting and it's just pure joy to, to be talking with them. But even to this day, I know I flummox my parents and bewilder them with my political views, my, my just my provocative comments. But we've, we've grown to appreciate each other. But I know that growing up that I was just, oh my Lord, <laughs> I, I, was, I was a hard child in, in the Getz family, but I was not a wild child. I was just, I just flummoxed them with my thinking and how provocative I was and how I talked. And, and uh, so I love that word because I do think it, it fits how I have treated my parents. <laughs> I love that word too. And I think that I flummox my husband when I don't collapse those Amazon boxes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. That He's is great. perplexed. Also, one other comment about the word. I love words that end in X just simply because they don't happen that often, but it's a nice strong consonant to end a sentence with. I, I love it. What do you think way, about words and connotation and how they delight the ear. I feel like that that's one that just delights the ear. We should talk sometime about the importance of ending your sentences and how to invert sentences and why that's so important when you want to convey emotion. So if you would end a sentence with flummox, you have that sound that ends it. You have that to, to flummox, which is a verb. But the ending of a sentence, and so you'll see a lot of the great writers, they'll invert sentences. You'll find they'll never put like a prepositional sentence at the end, like in the, in the night. They'll say, they'll put the prepositional phrase, either bury it in the middle of the sentence or put it at the front of the sentence. But let's talk about that sometime. But the, that's right. The word flummox, that, that, that X sound is really interesting. So rather than I was flummoxed by my husband, it would be like when my husband, I don't know, when my husband didn't put the bows on the packages correctly, I was flummoxed, right? You would, you would end right. it that way instead. And you, you're using the passive voice in that moment. And, you know, when you first learn the rules of grammar, you learn that you should never use the passive. But 
all these rules are meant to be broken. There are times okay. to use the passive. And so in that sense, you broke the rule so that you could end with the word flummox. And the reason why is because you're trying to convey an emotion or you're trying to do something in that sentence. Absolutely. Now, maybe we've flummoxed all of our listeners to this point and we should <laughs> call, it a, call it an episode. What do you think, Dave? I think we should. <laughs> all right. Kathy, thank you so much for joining us today and your rich insights. I am feeling really encouraged just by the process of putting things aside and coming back to it and just digging in when it's really difficult. And I know our listeners will be encouraged by that too. So thank you so much. Thank you, Melissa. And thank you, Dave, for the shot in the arm. I'm, I'm yeah. going to go block some time and honor it. Yeah, honor <laughs> it. Honor it. All right. Well, I am Melissa Parks. And I'm Dave Getz. Now buckle up and write. <laughs>